Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. As you've probably already noticed, Putin's invasion of Ukraine has brought NATO out of the shadows. Pope Francis says he's not sure if NATO's not to blame for the war in Ukraine. First up this week, as Vladimir Putin's plans to declare victory on May 9th fizzled out, Pope Francis caught criticism for echoing Putin's concerns about NATO. On a very short note, it seems that the Pope's knee problems have become worse. Also this week, the Pope has postponed the trip he was set to make to Lebanon in June. Cardinal Becciu testified that it was Pope Francis himself who approved spending up to 1 million euros to hire a British intelligence firm to locate and free a Colombian nun who had been taken hostage by al-Qaeda-linked extremists in Mali. And finally, Cardinal Becciu, the former chief of staff charged with financial corruption, makes a shocking revelation in the Vatican's trial of the century. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry. Good afternoon from a warm and sunny Rome, Colleen. Jerry, last week we had talked about how Putin had really wanted to hold a victory celebration on May 9th. We were watching the news very closely yesterday. We're recording this on May 10th. And you had mentioned that in the absence of victory, he might try to declare total war and escalate things. Let's just start out with the news. What happened yesterday? Well, he gave a rather low-key speech during the victory parade. The victory parade commemorated Russia's defeat of the Nazis in 1945. Now, Putin's speech, I followed it. Uh, It was interesting from one aspect is that he admitted publicly that Russian soldiers were dying were being killed in the Ukraine. And he said this is a, every loss of a Russian soldier is a tragedy for the country, for the motherland, and they will take care of their families or members of the family. Uh, he never said anything about how the war would continue. But what he did say was last December we had proposals for a peace agreement, but NATO, the West, had other intentions. And he even suggested that Ukraine had intentions of perhaps getting nuclear weapons. Of course, this is totally false. They had nuclear weapons and they handed it over some years back on the guarantee that they would have security. Now, this speech left many people wondering where the war is going. And the general conclusion is that he had nothing which he could really celebrate yesterday and call it a victory. Yesterday in this speech, Putin as you said, didn't have much to declare. And so instead, he kind of spent his time rehashing his many complaints about the West and the United States. He said that 
the U.S. and NATO were barking at our gate, and so this justified our war. He says, we saw military infrastructure being built up, foreign advisors starting work, and regular supplies of weaponry being delivered from NATO countries. The threat grew every day, and so Russia launched a preemptive strike at the aggression. So that's how he sees it. It was self-defense. Yes, he sees Russia as the victim in this. Mm -hmm. He does not say that Russia has attacked anybody. It has done what he calls a special military operation to defend Russians in the Donbass, that's the south and east of the country. But he never states the fact that he invaded the country, that they tried to take the capital of the country, and that they're in an ongoing daily process of destruction. So last week, Pope Francis caught a lot of criticism for echoing Putin's complaint that NATO was barking at Russia's gate. And he said that the war may have been, quote, facilitated by the West's attitude. And this was criticized, especially in the Wall Street Journal. Their editorial board wrote that the Pope blamed NATO for the war and was sending, quote, a terrible moral signal to dictators. I wanted to take a second to talk about this because it made so many headlines. Jerry, what did the Pope actually say here about NATO and Russia? Well, first of all, the Pope said, perhaps NATO's barking at the door provoked Putin. But this perhaps has got kind of eliminated, deleted from much of the reporting. And that's quite significant. Why is it significant? Well, if I say, perhaps this happened, and I say, this happened, it's two very different statements. So where's the Pope coming from? What the Pope said was, perhaps this was one of the provocations. He didn't attribute it as the provocation. And in reality, you have to go back quite a bit to understand that it wasn't this moment, 2021, December and 2022, because the Russians were then assembling their forces on the borders of the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Now, why did Russia invade? Putin puts it that they were threatening us. We are an independent sovereign state and we could not allow ourselves to be threatened. Now, there are many analysts also in the United States who claim that perhaps NATO should have moved in a softer way, perhaps should have not moved up so close to the Russian front. The Pope, when he made his comments, he was obviously reflecting what some people had told him. But he, he never made the statement that this was the reason. We just heard last week that he had sat in that meeting with Patriarch Kirill, where Kirill read off a note card for 20 minutes, all of the justifications for the war. So like, clearly, Francis has heard where the Russians see themselves as coming from. Yes. It seems like the deal here is that he's being criticized for suggesting that this could be the reason why they invaded when that's probably something that he's heard. It's just that that reason is so like offensive to the West because they don't see the narrative that way. Well, I think one has to put oneself in Francis's position. What is Francis trying to do? He's trying to see if there's a way to mediate with Russia. Right. He made very clear, I'd like to go to Moscow. I'd like to sit and talk with Putin. And if you completely disregard the argument of the other person and say, you know, this doesn't exist, this is false, then you're going to get nowhere in terms of, of agree. So in a way, it may have been a strategic comment to say, perhaps recognizing that that's how they think. He didn't say, that's how I think. His aim is to stop the war. This is the absolutely essential 
core message of the Francis, that this war has to stop. He says it's already done so much destruction and it has the potential to do even greater destruction. And so he has to somehow find a way of trying to talk with Putin because we see how difficult it is to talk with him. I mean, there are only f- there are few leaders who can speak with him today. Right. And this is the thing that I think that frustrates people, especially in the US, about the Vatican's kind of approach to international relations or even interreligious relations, which is that even if they don't think they're getting anywhere with the people who are dialoguing with them or who they would like to be dialoguing with, they're not going to shut down the communication channels. They're going to trying to keep that open in any way possible. That brings me to something that Pope Francis said on the religious side of this conflict. He was giving a speech to the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity, and he talked about Christian unity as a possible foundation for peace and reconciliation in this war. So we know that you know Francis's own ecumenical efforts have been stunted by the Russian Orthodox Churches and Patriarch Carol's support for the Russian invasion. The Pope and Patriarch Carol even decided to postpone their scheduled meeting this summer. But Jerry, I wonder if we could just kind of get to the basics here. What threats does this war pose to Christian unity efforts? Obviously, it is a major fact that if you have the Russian Orthodox Church leader and the majority of the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia, mm-hmm. not outside. Which we should say is only like 5% of the population, but has a huge influence. Yes, it has a an influence, and especially when you see that Putin presents himself as a member of this community, as a Christian Russian Orthodox. Mm-hmm. And exactly, uh, we've seen him many times, also during the war, with Patriarch Kirill. And Kirill, we've seen, come out in many statements supporting the effort and speaking about defending the motherland. Yeah, they're very much allied in this nationalistic kind of outlook. Francis made very clear, speaking to the Christian unity people, he said, this war, cruel and senseless, like every war, has a greater dimension and threatens the entire world and cannot but question the conscience of every Christian and of every church. Mm -hmm. We must ask ourselves, what have churches done and what can they do to contribute to the development of a global community of fraternity based on the practice of social friendship on the parts of peoples and nations. He's basically saying, is every Christian church working for peace and harmony between the nations? It's really a clear message to the Russian Orthodox. Are you working for that by supporting the war? Remember that the Russian Orthodox community in Ukraine have condemned this conflict and have challenged Kirill for his position. So what has this war done in effect? It has, first of all, made it more difficult for the Catholics and the Russian Orthodox to come together. It's made it more difficult for the other Christian churches to consider in a brotherly way the Russian Orthodox Church and its leadership at the present moment. Mm -hmm. They see them as going a way that is contrary to the gospel. Right. And then it's also interrupted the internal unity of the Orthodox churches. I think when this war is ended and when uh, somebody draws up the bill at the end of the day, we will see that the Russian Orthodox Church has suffered great damage from this war and that Christian unity has suffered too. Because with the Russian Orthodox Church now more fragmented and with the Orthodox community more fragmented, the 
the path to Christian unity has encountered enormous obstacles. Yeah, Pope Francis has talked a lot of times about how he he sees it as a scandal, and he's been saying this, you know, for ages about Russia and Ukraine, even back to 2014, about how it's a scandal that Christians are at war with each other. Because what kind of message does that send? I feel like it's also a scandal to see how nationalized those churches have become. Well, the the Orthodox Church in many countries has been very close to the authorities. This is part of its genes, in a way. I, I would say this, Colleen, there's this point to remember. How the Pope is perceived by the Russian Orthodox in Russia. Many, many of them see him as the Antichrist. He wants to go to Moscow, but Putin will never invite him without the Platchet, the agreement of Kirill. Right, which seems highly unlikely. It, really, most analysts here don't think it is likely. The Pope is right to try, but he has not had now, and it's day 76 as we talk of the war, that's in 56 days he's not had a reply from Putin to his offer to go to Moscow to talk with Putin. He's not had a reply. And there is no indicator on the horizon that a reply will be coming. So there's a lot of intertwined threads here. We have, you know, kind of Vatican diplomacy. We have these ecumenical efforts. There's a really good article up at americamagazine.org right now called What Critics of Pope Francis's NATO Comments Don't Understand About Vatican Diplomacy. I'm going to link to that in the show notes if our listeners want to read that and learn a little bit more about kind of how we need to understand how the Vatican is maneuvering here. Jerry, for our next story, Pope Francis's trip to Lebanon that was scheduled for June, although it hadn't officially been announced by the Vatican yet, was postponed until later in the year. Can you tell us why and how we learned about this? Well, I think this was uh, the height of wisdom. <laughs> okay, but why? <laughs> because Francis, for four months since January, mm -hmm. has had knee problems. We're now in April. We're now in May. Mm -hmm. He's had to extract himself from some of the ceremonies or really not play the central role. He's stated publicly that I have a lot of pain. He's in more recent times, the last 10 days, he's been in a week, he's been in a wheelchair at the public audiences. And we understand that he's getting some treatment. So you think it's a health thing primarily? Because of the health because of his knee, because of the difficulty of movement. When he went to Malta, remember, he didn't climb the stairs. To the airplane. To get onto the, the airplane. Yeah. He, he went up in the lift on the side. He, he, can, he has difficulty going up steps now. He really is painful. It seems he has difficulty even walking. The doctors have made very clear to him that he has to rest the knee, and they're giving him some treatment. His hope is that this treatment will work. We don't know exactly what it is. The aim is to get him mobile for the trip to Africa, which is on the 2nd of July, 2 to 7 July. He goes to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the largest Catholic country in, in Africa, and to South Sudan to support the peace process. So he wants to cut Lebanon so that he has the energy and maybe the, the time to heal his knee before he takes on that Africa trip and then the Canada trip later in July. Even for a pope in the best of health, to embark on three foreign trips, one to the Lebanon mid-June, 
one to Africa at the beginning of July, one to Canada at the end of July, was by any standards challenging for a man younger than he in good health. I know what it is to travel on these trips. Uh, I know how I, how tiring it is. And so uh, I spoke to many people here and they say that this is a crazy schedule. Yeah. Full stop. Without the health problem. With the health problem, it's clear that in one month, it's very unlikely that he would be in such good shape as to to do the Lebanon trip. And he's really profoundly wanted to go to the Lebanon. He's been promising, he's been wishing, he, he's been saying, get a government up and running so that I can come. And can you say briefly why he wants to go so bad? Because the Lebanon is the one country where Christians and Muslims share government, share government power. John Paul II, and I think Benedict, and I think Francis as well, described it as a witness to the world how these major religions can work together. But you have a major economic crisis, political crisis, humanitarian crisis, and you have real tensions. Can this country as it is survive? And so he's very keen to go and give his support so that the country can survive, that the Muslims and Christians can work together, and that they can get international help to enable them to get out of the quagmire in which they are. So Francis has not cancelled the visit to Lebanon. He has postponed it. Do we have any idea when it might happen? Well, I, I think it'll be in the autumn now at this point. All right. So we will keep our eyes out for updates on Pope Francis' travel schedule and on his health. We mentioned that he was getting around in a wheelchair. We'll keep you updated on how he continues to look and how he continues to recover. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk briefly about the Vatican's trial of Cardinal Angelo Becciu, who is on trial for financial crimes. Stay with us. Let's turn to the ongoing trial of Cardinal Angelo Becciu, who was formerly Pope Francis's chief of staff or sustituto. This has been called the trial of the century. And just to recap, Becciu is on trial for financial crimes, along with nine others who were involved in kind of a shady London real estate deal that lost the Vatican millions while making huge profits for middlemen. Now, Jerry, you and I haven't been giving step-by-step accounts of the trial. We think we can report on it better once it all concludes. But last week, Becciu dropped a bombshell in his testimony that has the potential to impact the Vatican's work going forward. So can you recap what happened? Well, yes. Uh, last, I think, Thursday was the day everybody was waiting for when Becciu finally took the witness stand. He spoke for two and a half hours. Wow. Or almost two and a half hours. Read something like a 50-page deposition in which he addressed the various charges against him. And through this whole deposition, Bechu maintains his innocence, right? Bechu, from day one, has asserted in the most categorical way that I am innocent, the charges against me are false, that when the trial is finished, I will be proved innocent. And so each uh, statement that he made, it was to underpin this total conviction that I am Mr. Innocence. Right. Now, what was the most surprising thing, which he prefaced that the Pope had given him permission to 
remove the pontifical secret, which would cover some of his work with the Pope. And Jerry, for our listeners, what's a pontifical secret? It's the highest level of confidentiality and the breach of which really brings heavy penalties. There's also a sense of disloyalty, of betrayal goes with it as well if you reveal information in the exercise of the office in service of the Pope. And this specifically in relation to this Cecilia Marogna, the Italian woman, who was an expert in intelligence and had presented herself as being able to help for the work for the release of a Colombian sister, a Colombian nun, who had been kidnapped in Mali on the 1st of February 2017. There had been lots of requests to the Vatican to do something to get her relief. Four and a half years later, she was released. A big thing that's making headlines here is that the people who kidnapped her were linked to Al-Qaeda. Yes, this is what is being said. One of these terrorist groups had kidnapped her, and she was able to communicate sometimes. After discussion with Maronia and with other people, Bechu came to the conclusion that they should try to do something to get her release. And he went to the Pope, and the Pope says, yes, yes, try and do what you can. So then, having spoken to Maronia, he went to London, where she put him in contact with a security agency, which said they could try to work for her release, but didn't guarantee it would work, but also made clear that it could cost a bit of money. And we're talking about a million dollars. And that's just to pay a ransom? Not necessarily to pay a ransom. It's to also to facilitate... Uh, making contacts. You have to make contacts with these people. You just can't kind of go on the door and knock and say, I'm here, I'm ready to pay you money. It, it, was a, it was a very complicated operation. Got it. So he spoke to the Pope, he said, on the 15th of January on the flight to Peru. And he spoke to him and the Pope said, this sounds good. He said, do what you can, but keep the Vatican out of it. And he also said, you keep this, reserve this information for yourself. So he didn't tell the head of the Vatican security, for example. Oh, wow. Okay. So practically nobody knew in the Vatican except the Monsignor Perlaska, who was working with him and who's also involved in this whole case since he's a star witness for the prosecution. And so at the end of the day, it seems that money was paid for the whole operation. The nun was freed on the 10th of October, 2021, and the Pope met her before the ceremony in St. Peter's, and then we saw him going to her at the end of a Mass in St. Peter's and giving her a blessing. It was, a, in, in a sense, a happy ending, but I, I think people were astounded that the Vatican was prepared to pay up to a, a million dollars, in other words, a high ransom, for the release. Now, we should make it really clear, like, it's not clear how much of the Vatican's money went to those Al-Qaeda-linked militants who kidnapped the nun. Some of this, as you mentioned, went to pay the people who were involved in the negotiations. So it's not totally clear how much of the money went to them. We do not know how much was actually used. Yeah. The other thing we should mention here is that the the reason this is brought up in this finance trial is that that woman, Cecilia Maronia, allegedly used some of the money that the Vatican gave her to buy luxury goods for herself. That's why this is this is in question now. Yes. Originally, this started way back that, that she was getting something like a half a million dollars in payments. And 
when they checked out how she was spending money, they saw that some was spent in luxury goods for an armchair, for uh, hotels, etc. Got it. So why was this so surprising that Betu revealed this? Well, it was surprising to many people that while Francis had lifted the pontifical secret so that he could defend himself in the court, I'm not sure what exactly Francis knew, whether he knew that all of this would come out in the court and be in the public domain, because it raises a major question, and several people have said to me, if it's now known that the Vatican is prepared to pay up to a million dollars for the release of a nun, it's a major problem now, because say they kidnap a nuncio, and the Vatican refuses then to pay the, the ransom, what happens? So many people here said, why in the name of God did the cardinal bring this into the public domain Right. to defend himself? Was this a sufficient reason? I mean, he, he is one who is not at a lower level in understanding church politics and the administration and the and the whole dimensions of the question. So, Jerry, I think you're raising a lot of really good questions here. I guess to wrap us up, where does this trial go next? Well, this trial started way back in July of last year. The first nine, ten months of it were bogged down in procedural details. This was, the, I think, the seventh or the eighth session of real entering deeply into the material. The judges have now set up 11 news hearings between now and July, and then the court will go into session for the summer. I understand there are something like 250 witnesses at least at the beginning of the trial, there were already 250 witnesses who would be called to give testimony. So I think we're looking into next year. Yeah, it's clear that it's going to drag out for a long time, most likely. So Jerry, we'll keep our listeners up to date on any really big developments from the trial. Otherwise, uh, we're publishing stories about this every once in a while at americamagazine.org. So you can go there to check for the latest updates. We also explained the whole real estate scandal that kicked off this trial several years ago now on this podcast. But I will link to that deep dive in the show notes as well if our listeners want to go back and get some context. Jerry, thanks so much for talking with me this week and going through all these stories. I appreciate it. Thank you, Colleen. There's no lack of information or stories from this side of the <laughs> Atlantic. No, not at all. All right, Jerry, we'll talk to you next week. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Production assistance from Kira Hanlon at America Media and Robert Balliser at the Jesuit Curia in Rome. Audio engineering by Kevin Christopher Robles. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. Please consider supporting our work here on Inside the Vatican by purchasing a digital subscription to America Magazine at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thanks. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? 
If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.